Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 17. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders at Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, Dr. Gerald Osier takes us through the last couple of weeks in cybersecurity news, and we sit down with Michael Argast, co-founder and CEO of Cobalt.io. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm Jerry, and this is the Simply Cyber Report, powered by Lima Charlie. Microsoft is continuing to fight the good fight against threat actors with their newest announcement of blocking the execution of XLL add-ins downloaded from the internet. An XLL file is a type of dynamic link library or DLL file that can only be opened by Excel. These XLL add-in files are typically written in C or C++. Now, functionally, they're similar to macros that allow for extended functionality and system calls from within Excel. Microsoft blocked the execution of macros in 2022, and we're protecting users by requiring them to enable editing, i.e. disabling protected viewing mode. There are ways around this control that threat actors could utilize, but it's a win for InfoSec professionals as the end users are less likely to accidentally run malicious code in office. The hacking group DragonSpark is making news as they are leveraging Golang source code interpretation to evade detection. The threat actor group is being tracked by Sentinel-1 at this time and has all the hallmarks of a sophisticated APT. Utilizing existing compromised infrastructure in China, Taiwan, and Singapore, their initial attack vector is through exposed MySQL databases. Once initial compromises occurred, they utilize WebSockets to communicate with their C2 infrastructure. The Golang-based tool dubbed SparkRat is OS agnostic, so any system really is at risk. It's a feature-rich post-exploitation suite with at least 26 supported commands that include industry-standard ones like information stealing, Windows operating system function calls, and the ability to update its payload listing and the actual SparkRat tool itself. If you're familiar with the China Chopper Commodity Malware web shell, be sure to add that to your indicators of compromise as DragonSpark loves them some China Chopper for returning access. Be sure to update your threat hunting playbook as threat actors are turning to Sliver, an open source C2 framework to replace the more popular frameworks that you may be familiar with like Cobalt Strike and Metasploit. Released in 2020, Sliver is a Golang-based post-exploitation framework from the security company Bishop Fox and actually has legitimate business uses for red teamers, but it's increasingly being weaponized by criminals. Sliver has a modular framework and is fully featured with capabilities to facilitate privilege escalation, lateral movement, credential theft, and persistence. All your classic post-exploitation framework favorites. The amount of Sliver seen in the wild isn't significant at this time, but there has been an uptick in activity, though that's why I'm sharing it with you. Cyber Reason has an excellent blog post write-up that I would recommend that you check out to include things like how the red teamers are using it, how blue teamers can detect it, and how purple teams can use it to tune their uh, controls in their environment. Also, they have the indicators of compromise, so you can introduce that to your threat hunting activities to ensure that Sliver hasn't slithered into your network. Now, I know WordPress compromises are almost as a meme at this point, but surprise, surprise, over 4,500 WordPress sites have been hacked and are driving victims to sketchy, malicious pages. Now, threat actors aren't defacing the websites of these WordPress sites, right? That's so 1990s. 
but they are inserting obfuscated JavaScript into the index.php file on the compromised website. The redirect is configurable by the threat actors, allowing a bit more modularity. Uh, the redirects that have been seen in the wild go to legitimate sites, I assume for some type of ad revenue for the threat actor, and also malicious sites for more traditional attacks like watering hole, credential harvesting, or even fake virus call for, to a fake Microsoft support line to take on fake tech support and basically get scammed out of money. Google has gotten involved and is actually blocking at least one malicious domain associated with this uh, campaign. But be sure to educate end users, keep those WordPress sites uh, lease use, turn off services and plugins you don't need, uh, and also use unique creds for accessing the back end, especially the admin uh, access. Baby, come back. <laughs> you can blame it all on me. I'm sad to report that Emotet Malware has made another comeback, and this time with new evasion techniques. Emotet was originally taken down by a coordinated international law enforcement operation, and it has reemerged and continues to be very effective as an initial attack vector. Emotet's claim to fame is not its humble banking Trojan roots, but its ability to be a highly effective malware distributor. Because of its modular nature, once it's running on an endpoint, the payloads threat actors need or have contracted out to other criminals can be deployed quite successfully. Emotet has uh, now upgraded their lateral movement capabilities through SMB spreading via a hard-coded list of username and password, so make sure you're changing the default creds on your uh, infrastructure. Emotet is uh, spreading through infected Excel files for initial uh, infection and then executing via macros. Now, you may think, well, macros have been nerfed by Microsoft and we heard about the XLL files earlier. So what's the problem, Jerry? Well, clever criminals have discovered that the Microsoft Office templates folders actually is a trusted location by Microsoft and will run macros if placed in there. So threat actors are tricking end users into placing the malware-laden Excel files into those template folders and then uh, executing or detonating them. Hopefully this gets tampered down as Emotet is highly effective at spreading malware and nobody wants that. Now remember to check out simplycyber.io slash streams to get longer form, deeper dive cyber threat briefings every weekday morning. I'm Gerald Ozier from Simply Cyber. Consider yourself armed with knowledge. Next up, my conversation with Michael Argast, founder and CEO of Cobalt.io. Please introduce yourself and uh, tell us what your company does. Sure. I'm Michael Argast. Uh, I'm the CEO and co-founder here at Cobalt.io. We build security programs for small and mid-sized companies. Uh, a lot of work with high-tech startups. That's been a, a key area for us over the last four years. Uh, we've worked with almost 250 organizations globally now at this stage, helping them you know, protect their data, get risk-based security programs in place, and achieve compliance. So that's so, us. So in a come nutshell. in and do an evaluation and then set them up with the tools and monitoring that they need to be secure. Yep. Do, we do everything from 7 by 24 security monitoring, private awareness training, VCSO as a service. Um, but a lot of what we do is actually, for high-tech startups, one of their key drivers is compliance. So this is things like helping them get to SOC 2, ISO, uh, HIPAA, you know, those sorts of things to, you know, basically use security as a lever to unlock growth, right? And so that's a, okay. a big part of the business that we're involved in as well. Very cool. Um, your origin story is a little bit different than most cybersecurity companies. Can you 
get our listeners up to speed on how Cobalt came to be and how you sort of ended up at the helm? Yeah. So, I mean, I think my origin story is a little bit different than a lot of startup stories, but I think every startup story is, of course, its own unique beast. Um, so I've spent almost 25 years now in cybersecurity. Uh, I worked at Sophos, um, Telus, a variety of other roles. Um, I actually kind of semi-retired in 2016 from Telus, uh, did a little bit of consulting, spent two months just kind of on a beach with my family in Thailand, um, which was fantastic. Um, after spending two months on a beach with my family in Thailand, I was itchy to do a little bit of work, uh, as you are sometimes. And I went to a colleague of mine, uh, Steve Munford, who's currently the CEO at Trulio, um, and said, hey, do you got any gigs that would be interesting? And he's like, get a job. And I'm like, I don't want a job. And he's like, you really should you know, get back to work. Anyway, so uh, two weeks later, he introduced me to Boris Wurtz and Pankaj Agarwal, who are my two co-founders. And they are serial investors um, and also, in Pankaj's case, serial entrepreneurs um, who had worked on a bunch of different projects together and wanted to do something kind of you know, as a team. And uh, the thing that they decided that they wanted to do was a cybersecurity services company. The thing they had absolutely no experience in at all with <laughs> cybersecurity. And so they were looking for a CEO to come in and help them build a business. And so very, like almost the reverse of a traditional like CEO with an idea, goes out and found something, goes and seeks capital. This is like capital looking for a CEO. Um, and in my case, you know, I went to my family, I'm like, hey, you know, I'm going from like semi-retired here, right? And hardly working at all to startup. Those are like complete <laughs> opposite ends of the spectrum. And they're like, you know, Boris, for example, he's on the board of Andreessen Horowitz. He's like incredibly well-known, well-respected VC. Um, you know, he's an early investor in Coinbase and Dapper Labs and Clio and lots of really, really successful um, SaaS startups. And Pankaj, as I said, serial entrepreneur, and they're like, you know, why wouldn't you do this? Like, you should definitely do this. So my family gave me the full support and we just kind of dove right in. And so that was a little bit over four years ago. And, um, you know, it's been an exciting and wild ride. Um, certainly not always straight up and to the right. Lots of up and down and curves and weaves along the way. But it's been a, a really fantastic journey. Yeah, every every failure is an opportunity to learn. And if you learn, it's not a failure, right? Yeah. The other, the other part of that that's a little bit different is, you know, having been in cybersecurity for 20 odd years, um, you know, I'm like, well, why am I getting back in? Like, what's the, like, there's lots of other people out there who are skilled at different things and are solving lots of interesting problems. Like, what's the problem that's worth solving in the market? And the, the, the real strong feeling that I had and still have is that the problem we're solving in the market was small and mid-sized businesses, right? Like, this is totally underserved, not focused on, everybody spends generally their energy and enterprise. Um, and, you know, you do have, you know, the occasional independent consultant stuff who will work with a bunch of small businesses, but it's not like trying to do something at scale. Right. And so I'm like, you know, if I can come back to the market and, you know, make a real dent in not tens or hundreds, but eventually thousands and tens of thousands of small businesses, that'll move the needle for security. And that's a worthwhile thing to undertake. Oh, that's great. And it actually leads into my next question, which is uh, traditionally hiring an outside security team is very expensive, which is why most small and medium sized businesses don't have very good security postures. Uh, what is it about Cobalt's approach that allows you to offer a high level of service while keeping that overhead low? Yeah, so there's a couple things. So one of them is, you know, if you look at the way most organizations will hire an outside security team, and again, back from the enterprise approach is they'll work with 
a contracting origin or, uh, you know, service provider, uh, one of the four letter agency organizations, big consultancy kind of thing. And that organization will go out and build a team and then add 30, 40% markup and then put that team in the customer. So really all you're doing is you're outsourcing recruitment effectively. And then hopefully they're also managing that team and dealing with a lot of the personnel issues and stuff like that. But that's not what a small business needs. A, a small business can't afford a team. They can't even afford a single individual. What a small business needs is the capabilities of a team, but for a very small fraction of the time and effort, right? And so you need to be able to provide that full team worth of capability, but do it at a cost and a price point, and also very much a service design level that's designed with a small business in mind. So not like a full-time VCSO, but a fractional VCSO, not like you know a whole bunch of delivery engineers and a dedicated SOC and all this kind of stuff, but like fractions of each of those services. But you need all the things. You need mm-hmm. an education program and you need policies and you need all those different elements. And so we've designed our thing so that you know we're delivering you the right service at the right size, at, you know, at a fraction of the cost of hiring even a single security analyst, mm-hmm. right? Um, but we're providing you, you know, a fairly com- uh, robust end-to-end security program. And so, you know, it's really got to be designed with small and mid-sized businesses in mind. You can't take an enterprise thing and just shrink it down. It's got to be designed, you know, from the ground up with, you know, the needs of a small business in mind. And a great example of this is something like, you know, we do a lot of gap assessments you mentioned earlier uh, for our clients. Um, you know, the way you run an enterprise gap assessment is like it's a several weeks long process. You end up with a 50 page report. You know, there's a lot of very detailed inspection and evidence gathering and all this kind of stuff. You do that for a small business, like they're not going to get past page three anyway. Yeah. Right. And so you need a tighter process that's, you know, maybe hitting things at a different level of depth, but is also recognizing where they are and what are the necessary things that they need to do to move things forward. And that's, not a $50,000 engagement, that's a $5,000 engagement, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, thoughtful design, um, thoughtful approaches will allow you to build something for that market, but you got to build it for that market. Um, you'd initially actually tried to build your own technology stack, but opted to do a different approach. Can you, you talk about what that learning process looked like and, and what that outcome ended up being? Yeah, so, um, you know, building a product company is a very different thing than building a services company. We were building a services company, but thought we had to innovate on product to create some price and cost differentiation. And the reality was we weren't funded to do that. We weren't funded and resourced to, um, you know, spend a year or two in development, building a product and then building a service around that product. And so, you know, it was quickly apparent, um, you know, maybe not as quickly as it should have been that that was not a very effective approach, right? Like to to build the technology from scratch and like uh, from scratch is of course an exaggeration. Like we were basically building a SIM equivalent on elastic, you know, so that we can build a sock service. Um, but we just couldn't get there fast enough. Yeah. And so, you know, we made a decision at that time to actually invest in Splunk. Uh, we have switched since switched from that platform because Splunk does not scale cost wise. Um, and you know, we could have a whole other podcast on that particular topic. Um, but the thing that Splunk gave us in those early days was an ability to ingest anything we wanted from customers, which is really important when you're trying to figure out like, what's the service I need to offer? What are the key things that we need to monitor and all that kind of stuff? And so, you know, shortcutting at that stage with technology off the shelf rather than building our own thing was the right decision to make. And it, you know, ultimately, you know, saved us and allowed us to grow into the business that we are today. 
Yeah, I hear that story all the time, maybe slightly different, but people building their companies on top of open source solutions, but the overhead of just kind of gluing everything together and keeping it up to date. And, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's a lot of hidden costs with free software. Yeah. And I think ultimately with the services business, you actually need to build the services business first and then start innovating on technology when you get to a scale where that starts to have returns. Right. Right. You don't start by investing a million dollars in technology development with the hope that you can build the services business on top of it. It's got to be the other way around. Yeah, because you're going to learn things along the way and then that's going to influence the design of the product you eventually build. Yeah. And we've done a lot of technology development and innovation in automation and, you know, service delivery and all that kind of stuff along the way that's, you know, helped us improve our cost of delivery, our prices to our customers, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, we needed to know like, oh, we're doing this thing 10 times. Okay, now it makes sense to automate it, right? Right, right. Uh, besides those lessons, is there anything else that you learned growing your company to where it is today? Uh, oh, so many, so many lessons. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, the, the obvious one for um, founders is like, obviously, you want to go out and talk to the market a lot, find out what people are interested in uh, and, and build those things. Um, but also you need to like actually put contracts in front of them as quickly as you can to see if they're actually willing to spend money rather than just willing to say yes, while it's still in theory. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you Mm -hmm. know, don't take positive reinforcement from customers too early, uh, if there's not money on the line. Um, you know, there's a bunch of things specific about selling to the small business market that I think are important. So one of them is you can't really sell a point solution. You need to find a way to sell a complete solution. Right. So, if you think about security overall, the market's largely defined by people selling an enterprise and they're scratching their own itch, right? So it's like, oh, uh, a great example of this is, um, I can never remember the name of the SIM that um, Google bought a number of years ago, uh, Backstory or something like this. And, uh, you know, the guy who built that SIM had a very specific problem he was trying to solve. And so he mm-hmm. built this great technology that enabled him to go like go back over extended periods of time and throw threat intelligence to these giant databases but really didn't have broad applicability, right? right. Um, but that's very much an enterprise kind of thing, which is I, I'm, I'm building a million-dollar solution to solve this point problem that I have in this 50,000-person organization. Mm-hmm. But when you're dealing with small businesses, it's like, I can't afford to solve one problem. I can't afford to go to five different people to solve five different problems. I want to go to one person and have them solve all five of my problems. Mm-hmm. So we start off with security monitoring as a service, which is a great service and lots of people need it. But, you know... When you're having a conversation with a CEO at a high-tech startup, it's like, how do I know that's the service I need? Actually, what I need is a complete solution. And so come to me when you have a complete solution. And so the faster you can get to something that actually is truly a minimum viable product, which looks very different in a small business space than an enterprise space, um, and then iterate and improve on that, the, the better. That's great advice. Um with your vantage point working with all these small and medium-sized businesses, uh, what are the common and biggest threats facing them versus enterprise? So, I mean, I'd say there's a few specific threats. I mentioned before, we do a lot of work in compliance because, you know, if you were to draw a risk register for your customers and go, what's going to have the biggest impact on, you know, revenues and dollars and all this kind of stuff this year, it's typically not ransomware. It's typically not business email fraud, although that's a really, really big risk we'll talk about maybe a little bit later. It's if I don't get my SOC 2, I'm not going to be able to unlock these 15 deals and I'm going to lose a million dollars in revenue, which doesn't sound like a security risk, but it's a if I'm not doing security right, my business isn't doing what it needs to do risk, right? Mm-hmm. And so so that's a, that's a really common one. Um, you know, an underlying and fundamental cause of risk for most businesses is lack of resource. 
right? They just don't have enough people in time. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked for Sophos for eight and a half years. Great company, fantastic technology, design down market. Um, and one of the biggest things at Sophos was, you know, we made a much simpler product than, say, McAfee with their EPO and all the complexity of an enterprise solution. And even still, with a, a real focus on simplicity, small businesses really struggled to work with the technology and implement it right and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's just like, that's the problem in small business writ large, right? Like, it's not that the technology isn't good enough. The problem is they don't have people to operate the technology. They don't know how to do this right. They don't, you know, they got other jobs every day. And so you need to really think about how do you design your services and your products and your technology in an environment where people don't have an hour, let alone five hours a day to look at, or a week or a month to look at your console or whatever it is, right? So, yeah. you know, that's that's something that's really, really a big risk factor for small businesses. They, they um, need the easy button. They, they need the super easy button. They needed somebody else to push the easy button for them, right? <laughs> okay, so, yeah. um, but I will talk about business email fraud just for a second. So business email compromise fraud. Um, and the reason I'm talking about it, I talk about every chance I can, is it doesn't get any coverage in the press, right? Like it's just one of those things that like, you know, business ABC had their email accounts compromised. An attacker got in there. They convinced somebody to transfer money to the wrong account. They lost $250,000. Happens Every single day, you never read about it in the newspaper because the money's lost. It's not a data breach, right? It's not shutting down, you know, a train system or a hospital or anything like that. It's just money out of their account, right? Um, so it's incredibly prolific. It's incredibly frequent, um, but it does, doesn't get any coverage at all. And I consider it actually one of the biggest risks to business continuity because like losing a quarter of a million dollars or half a million dollars for a small business can be existential. Devastating, right? yeah. And attackers love it because instead of like, are they going to pay the ransom? Are they not going to pay the ransom? How do I cash out these credit cards? All that kind of stuff. They have the money, right? Which is what they're really all about in the first place. Do you have any advice for small businesses that maybe aren't ready to take on outside help but are thinking about security? Is there low-hanging fruit we should be educating the public about? Yeah, I mean, the obvious thing when you say educating the public is actually education for their team. So user education, fish testing, those sorts of things incredibly inexpensive, incredibly impactful, right? Um, I actually generally will encourage organizations that are small to shift to the cloud if they can. Um, don't run your own exchange server. It's 2023. Um, you can't afford to operate and patch your own infrastructure anymore, right? Like it's just one of those things. And yeah, it might cost you a little bit more monthly for the service and stuff like that, but you're not going to keep up to date with all your security stuff on-prem. And so using cloud services, actually the right cloud services will reduce your risk. Um, and then lastly, things like MFA, um, you know, takes a little bit of familiarity to get used to it in the first place. But once you've rolled out once, it's really easy to roll out everywhere and it doesn't cost anything. Right. And is, you know, if you think about cloud services combined with good account security, that's going to solve like 95% of your problems. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. all the opportunistic stuff anyway, you know, the, the drive by yeah. yeah. kitty sort Absolutely. of well, like. If if I try to fish you and you've got MFA on that account, like the credentials aren't going to do me a lot of good most of the time, right? Now, that being mm-hmm. said, the attackers are doing all sorts of brute force attacks to try to get your one-time passwords and stuff like that these days. They're always mm-hmm. trying to find ways to social, right? So Yeah. yeah. Um, so you've been in security for over 20 years. What, what brought you to cybersecurity? Were you a technologist first or was it cybersecurity from the beginning? Uh, no, I was a geek like from the early days. Um, and so, you know, I, my, my early career was, you know, getting businesses their first internet connection and seeing the promise of the internet 
in connecting us all. And here we are. I'm working from a remote island community talking to you and we're doing a podcast. And like, wow, what's a podcast? All this kind of stuff. You can see even in those early, early days, um, the promise of the internet and how it would change everything. Um, and that was like the early stage of my career. And then the bad guys started coming, right? Like they just like, oh, there's this internet thing. And so I can use this to like spam people and, you know, deliver malware. And I'm like, well, I helped build this internet thing, right? Like connecting all these businesses. So now I got to protect it, right? <laughs> and um, so as a geek, I was running a, a Linux server in my basement, as we all did back in those days. Um, and, you know, had my own mail server and all this kind of stuff. And a job opportunity came up with a company called Active State, which then became part of Sophos. And they were in the anti-spam space. And I'm like, oh, yeah, spam. I could see this as a problem because I'm running on my own mail server. I could see all the spam that was going through it. And I'm like... Yeah, this 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 is exciting, right? So that was my first job in security. And of course, you know, anti-spam turned into anti-all the bad stuff and, you know, turned into a lifelong passion. The thing that I really like about security, you know, if you think about my early days about being internet and connectivity and all this kind of stuff, like eventually it just got to be faster and faster pipes. And that's kind of boring. Like, yeah, all right. Yeah. You got a T1, you got an OC3, you got dark fiber. It's like just, it's a faster internet pipe. Like, you know, it's different technology. But with cybersecurity, it's like different attack vectors and social engineering and new technology stacks in the cloud. And I love learning and you can never stop learning and be relevant in security. Like everything that I thought was true 16 years ago is not true today because the technology has completely changed from underfoot, right? So yeah, it's, it's, great. it's a great industry to be part of. Going and looking back at spam as a problem to now, what, do you, what has been the biggest shift in cybersecurity, like the attack vectors or the, the flavor of attacks that are coming through? Is there anything that stands out as, as a shift? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we're all hyper-connected in a way that we weren't uh, 20 years ago. Like, you know, we all have smart devices in our pockets that really change, like, just how people can get to us, and they get to us from a whole bunch of different channels. But, you know, the thing that hasn't changed... Um, to reverse the question is like, ultimately it's attackers attacking people, right? Like it's attackers working on, you know, the fact that we will make poor judgment, that we will react with our lizard brain to a sense of urgency that we can be, you know, scared into taking certain actions. And so, you know, I would say, you know, although technology has changed and defenses have changed and there's like 15 different layers of protection and EDR and XDR and MDR and all these different things, um, you know, at the end of the day, like if I can convince you to go to your bank account and transfer money into the wrong account through social engineering, like that hasn't changed. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's something that I think, you know, ultimately the human condition aspect of cybersecurity is, has been one through line that has continued and remained constant. Along with Cobalt, I noticed that you're the founder and CEO of something called Sky Northern. Can you tell me yeah. a little bit about that? That was my semi-retirement lifestyle business. Um, so I mentioned I, I retired from TELUS and I was on a beach in Thailand. And shortly after retiring from TELUS, I was working with a local security community, uh, part of ISACA called BC Aware. And we were running this conference. And they're like, Michael, we're going to give you a booth, right? And I was like an independent one-man consultant at the time. I was just doing advisory work and stuff like that. I'm like, well, what am I going to do with a booth, right? Like, you know, I'm not even trying to work here. Um, and one of the things that had um, occurred, so one of my ways of learning when I'm trying to get into a new domain area is to sit down with 15 different experts of that domain over a coffee and pick their brains, right? So like, what books should I even read? And which books should I ignore? What should I focus on? All this kind of stuff. And so when I hung up my hat at 
TELUS as a full-time employee and decided I wanted to just dabble with consulting as a part-time retirement gig, I sat down with 15 different cybersecurity consultants and said, you know, tell me about being in cybersecurity consulting. And what I actually got out of that was not just how to do that better, but also a common pain point for cybersecurity consultants, which was, I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy, I don't want to take a vacation, I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy, my contract's over, now what? Right? right. And so, you know, this kind of really, um, you know, up and down nature of being an independent consultant, I'm like, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we had this little alliance of independent consultants and so we could refer each other work? So if I'm too busy, I can pass it to somebody else and they can give me a kickback and, you know, maybe... I don't do pen testing, but I do GRC work and all this kind of stuff. So I built this network of independent security consultants and like literally had the idea to do it in November. And I had this conference in December and I like reached out to a bunch of contacts and I thought I'd have like 10 people for launch. I had 40, right? So I'm like, wow. oh, there's an idea here. And so that turned into the lifestyle business that really carried me for through the next two or three years. And I maintained that independently after the first year of starting Cobalt, I hired somebody to run it for me. And then I realized, hey, you know, if the problem at Cobalt is I don't have the minimum viable product, which is the ability to do everything for my clients, well, I have this beautiful little network of independent consultants that can do anything I need for my clients over here. So I folded it in. So Sky Northern effectively became part of Cobalt after the second year of operation and enables us to, you know, do all sorts of things to solve customer problems that we don't have the resources or we don't encounter frequently enough, right? Like, yeah. you know, there's a lot of edge cases in security that you want to be able to fill for a customer, but you can't afford to staff for a customer, if that right. makes sense. Oh, that's a really interesting uh, augmentation for your company. That's really cool. Yeah. Now you're back in the startup world. What do you do to balance yourself as a startup founder? I know firsthand how challenging it can be, and I'm always interested to learn how people cope with the pressure and high workload. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'd say a few things. Um, my family, of course, is incredibly important to me and spending time with them. Um, you know, you can't see out my window right now, but... Um, I'm three minutes from a beach on Vancouver Island now rather than a beach on Thailand. And I'm, you know, a five minute walk from being in the woods. And um, to me, like being out in nature um, is a really good balance to the, you know, fact that I've been on back to back calls every 30 minutes at 630 this morning. Right. And yeah, so yeah. finding those times to get out, get some fresh air. I go for ocean dips every Tuesday morning, you know, get out into the woods, do some snowboarding. In the summer, I'd like to do a lot of camping and hiking. Um, I like to joke that, like, you know, when I'm when I'm on vacation, I'm, like, trying to find ways to get where cell phone service doesn't exist because <laughs> yes. I want to be even more disconnected, right? Yeah. So I find that's a really good balance for me. But obviously, you know, the family aspect of that as well, like taking my kids backcountry sure. or, you know, going up on the mountain with them or whatever. Mm -hmm. So. This is the last one I have for you, and it's the one that I ask everybody's on the show, and it can be as wide or as narrow as you want. Do you have any predictions for the future? Yeah. Yeah, I saw this, this question on your list, and I'm like, I hate making predictions for the future. I, you know, so one of the things that I would say is that cybersecurity has gotten continuously worse for the 20 plus years that I have been involved in it. Uh, my bold prediction is that cybersecurity is going to start turning the curve this decade. Um, instead of getting continuously worse, it's actually going to start getting better. And, um, you know, I'll give you a bunch of reasons behind that, right? So a, a good reason is, like, if you think about one of the big causes for cybersecurity issues, it's like bad code, right? Like just, you know, vulnerabilities and all this kind of stuff. Well, we can see 
the advent of modern programming languages like Rust and stuff like that that make code safer by default, right? And you start to like basically build security resiliency in at the foundational layers of things. And it takes time, but over time, those things really start to make a difference, right? Mm -hmm. A good example of stuff that's coming up in a similar vein is passwordless, right? Well, I can't fish your password if you don't have a password, right? Like there's just things like that that will start to reduce the overall risk landscape. And then, um, you know, an interesting second order effect, I'm always interested in these second and third order effects of the war in the Ukraine of all things, right? So, you know, the war in the Ukraine, you know, Russia, Ukraine, horrible, horrible situation. Russia starts conscripting people, right? Well, where do you live right now that you can be a cyber criminal that you're beyond the reach of Western law, Russia, right? What happens when Russia tries to conscript everybody and millions of war age Russians leave the country? that were cyber criminals, right? Now they're within reach of Western authorities. Like one of the biggest long-term issues within cybersecurity overall has been it's a global domain and we can't get to the bad guys. Mm-hmm. Well, that's starting to change, right? And it's starting to change for just a totally set, weird set of unexpected reasons. It's not because the Russians are letting us get them. It's because the Russians are turning them out because they don't want to go to war, right? So I think that the the 2020s is actually a time where at the end of this decade, we're going to go, actually, security is in a better situation than it was at the start of the decade, which is, you know, for me, it's the first time in my career I feel like uh, I could say that. Although I think the next couple of years, we're still on the, the rise, unfortunately. Right. Well, it's nice to hear something optimistic for once. Usually it's pretty doom and gloom. <laughs> awesome. Well, right. thank you so much for being on the show, Michael. I really enjoyed talking to you. Likewise. Yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity and I, I look forward to uh, to hearing from people. Uh as they as they listen and hopefully uh you know if they want to you know get in touch they can reach out to me on linkedin and all the other usual socials so okay that's great and i'll, I'll put your contact in the uh, show notes when we publish and that concludes another episode of the cybersecurity defenders podcast we've been having a lot of fun putting the show together and would love to hear from you any criticisms, suggestions, or high fives can be sent to defenders at limacharlie.io. I would also like to thank you for listening in. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.